This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. The social contract. When we hear this term, most of us have a particular image in our heads. An image of Tunku Abdul Rahman, Tan Cheng Lok and VT Sambandan in a chamber with some old British guys signing something that has come to define Malaysian politics and history for better or worse. But what if I told you that there's no mention of the quote-unquote social contract in our constitution? So where did that term come from exactly? I'm Darshan Johan and this is Today I Learned. On the show with me today is Noor Netusha Nuseba. She's a historian and she's also the president of Imagined Malaysia. Welcome to the show, Netusha. Let's start with the big question. What exactly is the social contract? Hello, thank you, Dashin. So the thing is, the term social contract is quite a loaded term in itself. But it's actually pretty simple to understand. It originates from moral and political philosophy, um, particularly in the age of enlightenment, uh, which is a very important phase in European history where people started discussing about what is considered, um, yeah, basically the beginning of human rights discourse, what is natural uh, rights of people, and then how to navigate with power. And in particular, it's about the legitimacy of governments, or in particular, states over individuals. And it was during this time that then this very famous philosopher, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, he discussed this in a publication and considered social contract a theory. Basically, the whole idea is that when we try to discuss and think about, oh, okay, what rights do I have? And and it's always in exchange or in a relationship with the state. So you have to give up certain things and you get uh, certain advantages or privileges in return so that the state would protect you. That's why it's a social contract. So we have a clearly defined idea of this is the status quo and this is your role in society and um, this is then what we do for you in return. So it's a power dynamic. So because that's a theory, then how we came to understand it in our everyday lives is that constitutions, product of the age of enlightenment, are a form of social contracts. And it's just as simple as that. Like we understand, we see our laws, um, um, not just constitutions, but any acts and whatnot are basically just different forms of social contracts. Yeah. Right. right. So, so what, what does that term mean um, within the Malaysian context? Because um, the term isn't in the constitution necessarily. There's no specific paragraph or chapter. It goes, you know, chapter five, the social contract, these are the clauses, things like that. Um, so how did the social contract um, become a thing in our political and in historical zeitgeist? That's a really important question because over the last couple of decades, we've had this really big buzz about, oh, like, you know, Malaysia has a social contract. But the thing about Malaysia, which is so interesting, is that the concept of social contract, you know, imagination is that there's a separate document that right. kind of explicitly talks about it. And one of the reasons why this has been embedded in our minds is because there was a um, what most historians conquer was a fake document. 
that was circulating around and basically apparently spells out very explicit roles and responsibilities between the different races and that we shouldn't question our role in Malaysian society. Then the debate kind of expanded to, oh, like the federal constitution is a form of social contract. Yes, in a way it is, but it's not the way that we speak about it in the sense that um, it's a very complex document and we cannot just simplify it into being whatever it is that uh, some people might interpret, especially in terms of along like racial lines. The term itself, as far as we historians know, is that it kind of emerged during a political speech by a member of the United Malay National Organization, AMNO, where he, I think it was a 1986 uh, speech by this politician, where he invoked the term social contract to talk about the status quo between Malaysia's ethnic communities. And it became very controversial, became very sensitive. That's why it's um, now a loaded conversation. You know, we all, like I mentioned in the introduction, we have this image in our head. You know, we think social contract, Tunku Abdul Rahman, Tan Cheng Lok, Tun Sambandan in a room, some old British guys with cigars and they are signing something. What exactly did they sign? (laughs) (laughs) I think that's such a funny way of putting it because it's quite true in the sense that maybe not a very common argument, but um, the drafting of um, the federal constitution and you know our the highest laws of the land wasn't the most inclusive process. We know this from like our narratives of alternative history and thanks to the work of Fami Reza and organizations like Pusat Sejarah Rakyat, we know that there were other groups that also um, work on trying to push for a more inclusive Malaysian society that is free from uh, colonial rule. So when our famous founding fathers came together in Kalkosa Sri Nagara, which I had the privilege of working at um, and digging up about this part of the history, I think like what our imagination is, is that, oh, okay, like the British and whoever they assembled in the Reed Commission already had like this really concrete idea of how Malaysia should look like. And in a way, it's to control and make sure that British interests in the post-colonial period were still there. And so whatever legal definitions of citizenship and roles and responsibilities of the state kind of still preserve that connection to a certain extent. And in regards to the issue of social contract then, there's a lot going on there, I think. And um, what we should know is that not to be very apologetic to the founding fathers, but it's a very complex discussion. And in a way, we should treat the drafting of the federal constitution and Malaysia's first social contract as an independent nation state, as a draft. Because society right. does evolve. And there are no... I mean, like, in many countries, like constitutions are not meant to be set in stone, but they are treated as very sacred. But society does evolve. Uh, structures change, people change. And I think what we see when we look deep into like this process of negotiation, you know, between the these political parties and with 
the British government, we learned that um, there were no final answers. It's not set in stone. And I think that's why we have this conversation ongoing about what social contract means. What then would you say is the connection between the social contract, um, and I'm using air quotes here for those who <laughs> cannot see, and Article 153? And and uh, Netusha, perhaps you can also clarify um, for those who may not know, what is Article 153? Article 153 in the Federal Constitution um, grants the King of Malaysia, the Yang Dipertuan Agong, the responsibility for, in quote, safeguarding the special position of the Malays. We always remember the first bit of this paragraph, but there's actually more to it and it was amended. It goes on to say and include, and natives of any of the states of Sabah and Sarawak and the legitimate interests of other communities. Then there's the third part, which also uh, we tend to forget about in Article 153, that lists um, various ways that um, we can go about to safeguard the special position of Malays, natives, and legitimate interests of other communities. It included uh, quotas for entry in the civil service, scholarships, and a lot of it was centered on education and providing uh, opportunities to engage in commerce and economic activity. When, when we talk about social contract, we are essentially within our imagined uh, minds and, and what uh, is real, what, what's reality as well. In essence, we are talking about Article 153, are we not? Or do you see it as the whole federal constitution as a whole? Yeah, I, I would say that to boil down and narrow it down to Article 153 is not really realistic because we have this big constitution that defines the role of institutions and, um, you know, what is um, right and wrong about religious affairs and um, about the right to education, citizenship, your fundamental liberties. That is a social contract. So to focus on Article 153 without looking um, at the entirety of the document can be very um, narrow and also miss out a lot of important details. On the show with me today is Noor Netusha Nurseba, historian and the president of Imagine Malaysia. After the break, we discuss May 13, 1969 and how it reframed the social contract in our imagination. Keep it here on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashran Johan and on the show with me today is Noor Netusha Nurseba. She's a historian and the president of Imagine Malaysia and we're talking about the social contract. So, Netusha, earlier when you were talking about Article 153, right, you um, broke down all, all the clauses that were listed and, and you talked about how we often tend to ignore certain parts of it. Now, Prof. Shad Salim Faruqi, who's, you know, the con legendary constitutional law sifu, um, he once said concerning the social contract and Article 153, and I quote, As is the fate of all social bargains, once the original authors pass from the scene, um, the descendants do not always appreciate the rationale behind the original compromises. Do you agree 
with this and what do you think the good faith rationale behind the original compromises were? No, I do think there is good faith um, in the provision for Article 153. And that's because at the time that where Malaysia's political, economic and social development was, it was so stratified by British colonial interests. And we know that was a process that started centuries ago. And as a result, we have like three different major communities in the peninsula in particular. And the uneven development, the urban-rural divide that was emerging in um, the peninsula. Um, Because let's just remember and remind ourselves, these parts of the constitution were in relation to Malaysia, just as the Federation of Malaya. This is without consideration of Sabah and Sarawak yet. Yeah, I think that at that time, there was, if you read the Reed Commission document itself, there is debate and reservations about introducing affirmative action and special position for the Malay community. But if we look at the whatever existing stats or the discourse politically and whatnot, um, the Malay community were very much oppressed uh, by British uh, economic interests. And there was a huge class divide uh, within the Malay community between the elites and then the regular peasantry, which made up like predominantly Malayan society at that time. And because of this vision of industrialization and modernity that the founding fathers have, they saw that the majority race is not being is not going to be able to catch up unless they get a little more help. So one way of looking if we want to historicize um Article 153 is that it was a way of, at that time, what they perceived as being equitable economic measures, affirmative action. And of course, now when we look years later, we start talking about, okay, was it successful and whatnot? And I think that's why it's important to uh, consider, uh, we should appreciate, I think, as Prof Shad said, um, because, at least in my opinion, I think that it's um, we need to lend more empathy with our with each other as Malaysians. And at the end of the day, this was a document that was not drafted by us, regular people, right? Mm-hmm. It was drafted by those who held the most power in the state at that time. Or in that case, it was the colonial state. So all those groups like AMCJA Putra and other left-wing movements and political parties who had a more grassroots presence were not necessarily included in this conversation, right? And they had a very different idea. So to appreciate the absences and the silences that result in the drafting of Article 153 help us gather more nuance and I think it encourages us to have a spirit of solidarity. Yeah. Now, supporters of the social contract say that this was both a quid pro quo and a condition precedent for the granting of citizenship for the non-Bumiputra populations of Malaya in 1957. How much weight does this argument hold? 
you know, this, yeah, this is something that keeps cropping up, which makes it a difficult conversation to have. Uh, quid pro quo means to like have an exchange, right? Rights or goods or services. That's how it's um, said. And of course, when we frame it this way, it sounds super transactional that it cannot be revisited and questioned. That's the problem with the way certain factions have framed the constitution. But, you know, a lot of people have come forward, academics like Lim Teg Gi, for instance, has extensively written on, you know, social contract in Malaysia. So it's quite easy to dispute these arguments, but they seem to hold a lot of water because of the climate of racialization and race-based politics in Malaysia. You, you say it's quite easy to dispute this argument. How would you dispute it? Predominantly, I would say that when we look at the fact in the reconstitution, there was a little like caveat for um, Article 153 that you know was recommended for Article 153 to be revisited um, and other forms of provisions. So that when um, eventually when uh, certain ethnic communities have caught up and there is more uh, social, political and economic equality, then we should work towards legislation that, that does not allow for racial discrimination. It should go beyond the category of race. So are you referring to this paragraph um, from the uh, Reed Commission, and I'm going to read it out. It, it basically says, our recommendations are made on the footing that the Malays should be assured that the present position will continue for a substantial period, but that in due course, the present preferences should be reduced and should ultimately see so that there should be no discrimination between races or communities. So this is taken from a report from the Federation of Malaya Constitutional Commission, 1957, paragraph 165, page 72. Is that basically what you are referring to here? Yeah, yeah, that, that's exactly what I was talking about, yeah. Now, when we fast forward 12 years after independence, we arrive at 1969, which is a dark day in Malaysia's history. I'm talking about May 13, 1969, specifically um, what a day many uh, many dubbed the, the racial riots of Malaysia. Now, what was the impact of this day on the framing and understanding of our social contract? Okay, yeah, May 13, 1969, which is framed as a racial riot, but if we want to be really honest about it, um, it happened after elections. And yeah, basically it was more political and somehow race kind of got thrown in this mix and became like the predominant feature of the riots. Right. And if we see work uh, scholarship, the most prominent is Kwa Kya Sung's work on the May 13, 1969 riots, where he looks at, you know, declassified documents and reports. There's a lot of clarity on how it's a political thing. However, because it was in a time where, you know, Malaysia is still a very new post-colonial state. What our founding fathers had discussed in the drafting of our constitution and the rights and the social contract, basically, that we refer to, right? People are still living in very disparate, and there's a huge, I mean, there's a very huge disparity economically, socially, but politically. People are still very stratified during this time. And consequently, 
the Razak government um, decided to come up with the NEP, the New Economic Policy, as a way of correcting it. And I think in our general understanding then, this was like a renewed uh, social contract, the creation of this policy. And by default, maybe what the mainstream narrative has become is that with the production of the new economic policy that reinforces and entrenches Article 153 in a way that it shouldn't be um, revisited or questioned. Right. So earlier you also brought up something interesting uh, when you were reading out um, what the, the contents of Article 153 and you mentioned Sabah and Sarawak. Why do, don't we talk about native Sabah and Sarawakians when referring to the social contract? Okay, well, I can only comment very generally because I don't consider myself a, um, you know, expert on Sabah and Sarawak's issues. And I think the narrative that uh, comes from Sabahan and Sarawakians is very valid and they can put it in a much better way that I can't. Right. So, but what uh, I understand from this is that Sabah and Sarawak um, and the inclusion of Sabah and Sarawak can somehow feel like an afterthought. It doesn't have uh, so much impact on the federal constitution and it's more like just a plug-in. This is uh, something that uh, tends to be revisited every year, especially when the Merdeka celebration is coming up. Every time we think like, okay, like, you know, Malaysia is independent, but then we get reminded right again on social media, hey, it's just the Federation of Malaya, not Sabah and Sarawak. And like the real Malaysian day is actually uh, 16 September. So, so, so that's just like a really like, uh, it shows how pervasive then this idea of the afterthought comes uh, into the imagination of our social contract. Um, it's still very peninsula-centric and of course, it's very much preoccupied with Malayan dynamics in post in a post-colonial context. Netusha, the social contract was signed 65 years ago. As a historian, how do you reflect on it today? In a way, I've kind of shifted like hats for change hats for a bit right now, and I do political analysis, right? And if I were to put two and two together, looking back uh, 65 years and today. What's fascinating and kind of a little bit exciting, I would say, is that Malaysia right now is kind of going through a process of re-evaluating its social contract. We see this with the anti-hopping law. We are talking about citizenship rights for mothers who have born your, uh, you know, given birth to children overseas. These are all forms of um, re-evaluating what that social contract is. We've been talking about the racial quotas in higher education now with a lot more openness. So in a way, we should be quite happy that there is more courage and um, freedom to discuss about how the social contract is going to evolve. And of course, the pinnacle of this um, re-evaluation is 
what is the role of corruption in our society and to what extent can we hold those in power accountable for their actions, right? We are seeing that today. So in a way, it's good to see that this conversation around the social contract is actually evolving to what it's about. At the end of the day, it's a theory. And we are projecting the theory and we are trying to make sense of it and no rights and we say in some rights are inalienable alienable as Americans like to put it um, in their constitution, right? But at the end of the day, not everything stays the same. And this reevaluation and constant renegotiation is something that's part of our political lives from day to day. So it's quite exciting to see 65 years since Merdeka, Malaysia is going through this process of questioning and reforming. Maybe not the most ideal ways, not perfect, but something is happening and we should keep watching because history is being made. One last thing before we wrap this conversation up, would you have a Merdeka message for us? I'd say... (laughs) (laughs) But Hari Merdeka, and I hope that despite what a turbulent time it has been for us as a country, that all of us, regardless of our race, gender, class, sexual orientation, um, that we all realize we have a place here, we have a right to exist, and we have a right to participate in the evolution of our social contract. So that's because that's what it means to be truly Merdeka. Thank you so much for joining me today, Netusha, and have, happy Merdeka to you too. That was Noor Netusha Nuseba. She's a historian and, pre- and she's the president of Imagined Malaysia. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashran Johan, and this has been Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.